1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of today's podcast, and I am pleased to have Brian Eugenio Herrera with me to discuss his recent book, Latin Numbers, Playing Latino in 20th Century U.S. Popular Performance, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2015. Dr. Herrera is an assistant professor of theater in the Lewis Center for the Arts at Princeton University. His work examines the history of gender, sexuality, and race within and through U.S. popular performance and has been awarded a, f- a fellowship support from the Ford Foundation, the Smithsonian Institute, and the Don and Sybil Harrington Foundation. Latin Numbers is Brian's first book, and it has been recognized with the George Jean Nathan Award for dramatic criticism and an honorable mention for the John W. Frick Book Award from the American Theater and Drama Society. Hello, Brian, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
2: Hello, and thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, great to have you here, and i uh, particularly excited to uh, talk about your book. Uh, it's got a great cover, by the way, so we're going to have an image of it on our uh, website, as well as a link uh, to Amazon for those that are interested in purchasing it. Uh, and I just wonder if you'd like to dis- uh, begin our discussion today by telling us a bit more about uh, your personal and professional background.
2: Well, my personal and professional background um, is I am, uh, identify variously as um, as Chicano and Latino and Mexican Mexican American, but most emphatically as Nuevo Mexicano.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, my family reaches back in New Mexico for several, for many generations. And even though I've spent uh, only about half of my total life in New Mexico, uh, it's always been a sort of a, I've been in New Mexico, I go away, I come back to New Mexico. It's always, a, and so it's always a guiding sense of what uh, of who I am wherever I've been. My training has mostly been and uh, has sort of reflects that actually is I did an undergraduate degree at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, but then I did a master's degree at University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Did my PhD at Yale, had my first academic job at the University of New Mexico and now I'm at Princeton. And So my life sort of does do that back and forth both personally and professionally. Um, my training is all in American Studies
0: Mm-hmm.
2: um where I've always been studying uh, ever since an undergrad i've always been studying the sort of the way that race, gender, and sexuality sort of play out in entertainment venues mm-hmm. um and because in the the way uh the fields were when I was coming up um Theater was very focused on what only what happened on stages and film film studies was very focused only on what happened on screens. And I found myself interested in what happened in between and beyond those venues. And so American studies became a space where I could begin to think about actors as they moved between different performance platforms as opposed to limiting my my approach to one. Also, American studies has always was always hospitable to my interest. The way, the sort of the idiosyncratic way I approached, um, Latino studies mm-hmm. I, in that I was not always thinking intra an ethnic group. I was thinking about. Uh, performance where people often perform across ethnicities, even if they're playing a Latino role, they might not be, uh, be that kind of Latino.
0: Right. And So
2: American studies had a little bit of different sort of flexibility for me to think more critically about Jennifer Lopez playing Selena, you know, right. um, um, you know, these, these kinds of questions that I knew I was interested in that by studying Chicano studies might have move me in a slightly different direction. So my intuition, some of my creative creative and intellectual instincts always found a very capacious home in American studies. And so even though all my jobs have been in theater studies, I definitely consider myself uh, somebody who comes out of that interdisciplinary study of history and culture that American studies has always been in the U.S.
1: You know, it definitely um, comes through throughout the book. I mean, there's a very strong... um you know, historical, you know, narrative and kind of spine that runs through uh, the book, but also, I mean, you know, just the interdisciplinarity of, uh, as you mentioned, you know, bringing in uh, performance studies and and uh, a number of other uh, both, uh, uh, you know, literatures and, um, you know, skill uh-huh. sets to your work. Uh, definitely, it, it, it makes sense to me that uh, you came, come out of American Studies and it, it all just fits together nicely. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how you decided to settle on this particular project.
2: Well, this particular project is my first book. And like many first books that your listeners know about, it often started its life as a dissertation. And that was Mm -hmm. the story of this book. Um, Part of what I was very interested in was when I started the project, I was very interested in, I started it about 15 years ago um, and really it came into focus the summer of 1999, which I talk about in the book um, as the summer that, some of your listeners might remember it was the summer that everyone was living La Vida Loca. It was, uh, it was a big, it was a moment when uh, magazines were focusing on the new Latino boom. It was all sort of in Pretoria anxiety of what the 20, what the 2000 census might say about the importance of Latinos in the demo, demographically. But I was struck as I was watching all that media coverage at how at a sort of simultaneous, at a kind of historical amnesia, it named, even as it's, the way it told the story, it belied it. So there would be these moments where we are saying Latinos are suddenly new and important and they've never been as important as this. And then they would trot out like pictures of Ricardo Montalban and Ramon Novato. And so it was this sort of thing of like, (laughs) like simultaneously, like Latinos just got here. They're all so new. Oh my gosh, what do we do? How do we incorporate them into our American lives? And then they bring up like generations of Latino, Latino performers in their sort of sidebars. And so, so I was struck by that paradox. And I realized that even though there were some foundational texts that really did think of uh, a, a broad history, I was really craving for the book on the shelf that would sink um, across ethnic groups and across the 20th century. And, and so I set out to sort of build that, build a story that could really think about what was, how did performance help make the category of Latino legible?
0: Mm-hmm
2: to Latinos and non-Latinos alike in the course of the 20th century. Because I did feel there was a story at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and Cubans were among the many nationalities that were part of the big anxiety. Like They would be listed alongside Celts and Poles among the nations in in the city. And then somehow those Celts and Poles and Jews Somehow in mid-century, they all entered into provisional claims of whiteness. Right. And the ones that went out of whiteness ended up being gathered under another umbrella called Hispanic and then mm. later Latino, et cetera. And so I was like, what is that story? And how can performance help me sort of understand and see that story of building this aggregate ethno-racial identity or identification for these very disparate cultural and national groups?
0: Right,
2: And because part of what I was interested in was performance um sort of in its way sort of practices ideas it like i like to say that performance rarely makes change it rarely causes change it often reflects change and we we're good at thinking about how performance reflects change but i'm most interested in how performance how, we look, how performance rehearses shifts in vocabulary, rehearses social changes, rehearses new ways of understanding things, and I thought that there might that performance might help us see this category the deformation as it was played out on stages in experiential ways for audiences both non Latino and Latino. Um, this idea of there being something more alike in the difference in their difference, this that Latino, these different disparate national groups were more alike in the ways they were different, and therefore they were one thing. Right. So that. So that sort of was I was looking at that. So I started out with this ridiculously ambitious dissertation proposal. Like nine chapters, a hundred years, you know, the whole thing. And in a way in the way that book early book proposals often do, is really mapping the conceptual terrain. And the dissertation took shape between the period eighteen ninety eight and nineteen eighty. And then the book shifted Mm. a little bit differently towards from nineteen thirty nine to nineteen ninety nine. Right. And that was as I came to understand the project, I began to understand that the story made sense in a different way when I really thought between the good neighbor era and up to the end of the 21st century, the very end of the 21st century.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. No. And uh, one thing you mentioned, the the term you use quite a bit uh, that I really liked, actually, uh, throughout the book is rehearsing, rehearsing ethnicity, um, you know, kind of in a way kind of preparing um, and this is what I'd like to expand a bit more. What, what you mean by that that term is it, was it kind of like a, a foreshadowing, um, you know, of you know, for U.S. audiences, or was it a way of preparing uh, U.S. audiences to think in ways of you know different ethnic groups, particularly as this book focuses on Latinos becoming this pan ethnic type mm-hmm. of non white group. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think it's 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 preparing, it's practicing, but it's uh, but it's also trying things, trying ideas on for size. Mm-hmm. Like, does
0: this mm-hmm. work? Gotcha.
2: You know, it's like in a performance context, when you're rehearsing, you're trying out to see what's going to work. You know, you're getting ready to do it well. You're practicing to do it really well. But that doesn't mean you're good at it yet.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And part of what I love about um, thinking about how, how performance rehearses ideas that then come into focus information is it helps us explain these moments when we encounter in the broad archive of popular performance, these really incongruous moments of like, how did they think that made sense? Right. You know like like these moments of often when we, we we'll talk about them in terms of outrageous racial surrogacy of like sort of seeing um uh Charles and Heston play a Mexican kind of thing. We'll see these things as like how did that like that's so wrong? it's so racist da 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 da, da. part of that, what I'm interested in there is like well why why didn't it cause them to stop? you know like in performance, one thing about performance too is that any performance, especially any film or big main big stage work. Uh, a whole bunch of people have to agree to do it. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of people who have all consented that this is the way to go. And so part of what I was interested in is often the failures or the things that, from a historical remove, seem a little bit incongruous. Like, how the heck did it make sense for Ricardo Montalban to play the romantic lead, the the second romantic lead in this major Oscar bait movie called Sayonara Mm -hmm. when he's playing a Japanese Kabuki master. (laughs) How did it make sense to cast Ricardo Montalban as a Japanese Kabuki master? And we could say it's cultural cluelessness or its stupidity, but it's also like something about it made sense to those folks too. So the same year that Ricardo Montalban played uh, this Japanese Kabuki master, he was also appearing opposite uh, Lena Horne in a Broadway musical called Jamaica in what was called an all black cast. So I was really just interested in these incongruities and how our fairly emphatic narrative of what Latino was and wasn't that really came into focus in the later 20th century, how it didn't always seem to comprehend the complexity and the, the messed upness of the 1950s and 40s and 30s. And so how do we go back to saying not just that they got it wrong, but asking what were these folks trying to do? Why did this like and so, in some ways, it was like they were rehearsing something, and it wasn't the version that stuck right mm-hmm. but what right. was the logics in the rehearsal? Gotcha. Why did they choose to try it this way and And so, in some ways, for me it 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 goes to the richness of our archive when we're not only assessing what are positive and negative representations, which the discourse of stereotype encourages us to do. instead, what it asks us to do is like what evidence of racial exploration or racial experiment like experimentation about these ideas about race can we actually evince from a narrative, from the Mm -hmm. archive? Like rather than deciding it's terrible or not, like what was going on? And most of the time these folks are not malintent, but they're reflecting the moment, they're reflecting the common sense of their moment. And so how can these odd production choices of the past help us evince what the racial common sense was of a past moment? Right. And so rehearsal is a way... To sort of say, like, there's ideas that by the middle 1960s, a lot of these aggregate ideas of Hispanic or Latino are now firmly in place, and so things begin to realign around that idea. Mm-hmm. Before the middle 1960s, that aggregate idea was very un- was very vague. Right. It took a variety of different shapes. So when we look at that, not as failures of later of later standards but in some ways of getting toward that moment when this aggregate idea came into focus what do we learn from what the limits and the possibilities of 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 race of the the limits of raciality that latinos were often walking right at the edge of in american popular entertainment
1: right right that's so clever i just love the use of that that term and and how it came up so i appreciate you expanding on uh, on it more. There's also two other key concepts that, that are really lay at the center of your book. Uh, and, and the first is in the title. It's, well, both are in the title. So the first is the Latin number. And you begin mm-hmm. with chapter one, kind of, a, you know, outlining, outlining what that is, uh, and how that recurs, you know, over, uh, the period that you cover the, uh, roughly 60 years, right, of the narrative. And then the second, uh, key concept is playing Latin. So I wonder if, can you uh, explain the difference between those two? Uh, for our audience and how yeah, they, yeah,
2: Latin, Latin, Latin numbers and playing Latino. Um, uh, Latin numbers is sort of in, I think it's the easiest way to think of it as sort of the event of uh, right. the phenom- like the event or the phenomenon. So whenever there is a, for one example, a Latin explosion, and there's a sort of a renewed popular cultural fixation on latino in, in magazines or websites start fixating on, or these moments of the new, or these moments of we have more Latinas on main, on network television, like these, these kind of moments, they're, they're always like sort of these events of fascination with the presence of Latinos. And in some ways, the event of fascination with the presence of absence can be a Latin number two. It's this heightened moment of fixation and interest. And so the Latin number is the phenol- the cycle of fascination, and then ultimately that then goes to disinterest. So it's nice. this, it's, it's it's this event. Or it's the way to think of the event of the of the the recurring prominence of Latinos in American popular performance, and the way that recurring prominence is punctuated by conspicuous absence. Mm -hmm. And so how do we think about these phenomenons? Not necessarily as the moment we've broken through, but more a recurring cycle. Right. And so, so the Latin number is the event and we can, we can sort of say, is this a Latin number? Oh, it probably is. Okay. Playing Latino is in some ways, what are the, what are the techniques and tactics by which Latino-ness is performed by Latinos and non-Latinos alike in such Latin numbers? So while Latin numbers, the phrase Latin numbers thinks about the phenomenon or the event, Playing Latino looks at the tactics, the techniques, and the, the strategies and, and decisions made in those moments by actors, um, Latino and non-Latino, in terms of making that idea of latin or Latin-ness, depending, um, come to focus. So okay. that's sort of the pivot of those two ideas. And I was balancing back and forth um, between, uh, you know, like at uh, one point the book just was called Playing Latino in 20th Century Popular Performance, and I felt like there was something missing. Mm-hmm. And then finally, finally, it just occurred to me. It's like because for a long time the book was called Latin Explosion, and um, and then that wasn't quite right because that was an old. That wasn't really what the book was about anymore. But then I realized, oh, what it is about is about this recurring cycle and each of these events that the book narrates. Looks at different kinds of Latin numbers and the way that they're used toward different ends, and the way that different groups within the Latin number perform Latinoness, often with different sense of cognition or awareness, you know? So, so it was like when I realized that, oh, Latin numbers could be a good four title and then playing Latino, those are the two conceptual, conceptual things where in a Latin number, there are people playing Latino and those two things always operate in a dialectic.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. And so chapter one begins by essentially kind of, uh, you know, outlining, you know, the, the components of the Latin number. Uh, right. The, yeah. uh, those things that become recognizable. So where we can see, as you, you pointed out, too, that, oh, this is a, a another recurrence of this explosion or phenomena that happened maybe you know 10 yeah. years ago or 20 years ago. So can you tell us what are some yeah, of those components? And, 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 oh, go ahead.
2: Well, the components really are. Yeah. Well, and in some ways, the first chapter really talks about the Latin number as the term often will circulate is this idea of like suddenly in the middle of a show, there'll be a Latin number. Like exactly. The show might be set exactly. on the set right. on a boat on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic, right. but then all of a sudden people come out with flouncy sleeves and maracas right. and a new rhythm, and everybody's going to conga. A you know, so be, this yeah, way of this signals this,
1: it to you. Right? Yeah,
2: yeah, this, this, yeah, uh, this way of just a certain set of. Performance, costume, like performance elements, sonic elements, design elements, and also this kind of exuberance that became the signature on the conventions of the Latin number, and and it was a it was a genre formation that I really saw come into focus over the period of the broad broadly conceived the Good Neighbor era from the later from the middle to later nineteen thirties up through the nineteen fifties was mm-hmm. it was really we could see that see this 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 um, stock number coming to folk come into formation. We could see it sort of rise. We could see it get conventionalized where it sort of becomes sort of, this is what it has to have. And then we see it in circu- like dissolve in some ways where it can be used or not used in all kinds of different uh, variations. And mm-hmm. so um, so basically it's uh, but usually the, the features are a fixation on um, authenticity of, of cultural experience. Um, typically a hyper uh, fixation on some kind of experiential dimension of uh, a a sensual dimension Mm -hmm. and typically you know so so it's either so it's a focus on authenticity a focus on sense on something one of the senses and then uh this a, a fascination with its energy and its surge like those are the three things that almost any latin number um will end up you know, will like, there's like, and this, I've never tried to do this in terms of a really meta approach, but the core features are, there's usually something about like authenticity. There's something about sensuality. And then there's something about urgency,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, that there's some, and, and in a Latin number, um, it, you know, in a musical Latin number in the 1950s, for example, that is described as being like, Oh, look, There's this, there's this person from this place and oh, they're doing a number and oh my goodness, it's so big and so loud and so fun and oh my gosh, it's happening so quickly and we're caught up in it and oh, how exciting and then it's over. (laughs) You know, it's, it's this, that mix of, of, oh, I get to have this experience by going to this foreign land and, oh, look, I get to have this experience by having this dish and, oh, look, I get to have this thing and, oh, it's over. How do I survive? You know, there's this Uh kind of, there's this urgency, there's this urgency and sensuality and authenticity that commingle all in an elaborate spectacle that is in some ways, none of those things. And so, so it's, it's um, and that's when when so the metaphor that I use in really focusing on how the Latin numbers as a genre formation within the American musical stage, on uh, and the American musical stage, whether that be on a Broadway stage or on a sound stage in Hollywood. Uh, this genre formation, how it becomes then a metaphor that with just by using the way we use critical metaphors in the academy, we can then see a Latin number up happening in a different way. Like right. I be, The first chapter really looks at the Latin number as it, at its most conspicuous, sort of mm-hmm. as I've described it. These, these numbers of explosion of Latinness in the context of, for no good reason, all of a sudden everybody's dancing, dancing a conga kind of thing. <laughs> and then I switch gears in the second chapter and I go to a, a very sort of under the radar latin explosion which is uh i talk about these the the prominence of latino actors or actors that we would today call latino in the period of the 1940s 50s and 60s and how uh between 1947 and 1963 more latinos were nominated for and won academy awards than any period before or since
0: right
2: and we don't often think of the 1950s as the golden age for Latino actors, and yet when we look at how many Latino actors, male and female, of all different ethnicities and of all different phenotypes, were working seriously in that era, it's a fascinating paradox. So I was interested, like, why were Latino actors so such hot commodities in this period? Right. And so even though it's not as obvious as say a bunch of a band swooping in with. With some polyglot of like we've got mariachi guitars, and we've got we've got like uh, Caribbean drums, and we've got all this weird mix like these broad, crazy musical numbers. So even if it's not as obvious as that, what are these other moments of remarkable presence that how can a Latin number is a phenomenon? Because it wasn't like Latino actors were working a lot before, and notably, right after 1965, no Latino got a nom- no Latino got an Oscar nomination for another 25 years. And Mm -hmm. usually in 1965 is when we talk about the moment when Latino art started to come to prominence and maturity. So I was like really struck by this sort of historical paradox. And as I puzzled through, it's like, yeah, Latino actors were, uh, actors we would today call Latino were especially valuable in this period, in some ways marking the color line. Many of the, all the Latino actors were playing across, like they played every ethnicity. They played uh, Latino and non-Latino. They played white, black, Asian, every Latino actor played all of these things often in narratives of imperial or erotic context. Right. And so I was like, okay, so there's something that Latino bodies are especially valuable in charting these narrative frames um, where they're both racial enough, but not so in fact, clearly raced that they, Uh, violate any color lines so there's the kind so I was like so I had to find a way to tell that story so a really prominent so a Latin number can be totally in your face and it also can be pretty stealth it can be pretty under the radar and that was what um what I was looking for the metaphor of Latin number as being able to contain the how do we understand the presence of Latinos even when they're even when it doesn't it doesn't take the, the more conspicuous sort of here we are we're Latin even if it doesn't take that shape, what are the ways that we can mark that presence, and then also concomitantly the absence?
1: Yeah, and I'd like to uh, talk a, a little bit more about um, you know that second chapter, and in, in particularly um, you know you used that uh, you know the term of stealth Latino, and your examples yeah. here are you know Ricardo uh, Montaban, right, Juan Hernandez, and uh, Mel Ferrer, and how they were like these racial intermediaries at this time, right when Hollywood was making this switch from Um, Uh I think you say the era of racial mimicry to racial congruity, right? Um, Uh so you talk a a little bit more, you don't have to talk about all three, but just more of, uh, you know, uh, how those actors themselves and their Latino identity kind of flew under the surface, but also made that, because they had this kind of like racial in-betweenness, allowed them to play these different ethnic characters, uh, you know, and thereby fit into Uh the movie casting.
2: Well, I mean, I think part of part of the idea I'm I'm really interested in is the way uh, part of I ch- I chose to talk about the three of them because. All three of them were not, were, were seriously working well-regarded actors in the 1940s and the 50s.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it was a period where they worked really, in some ways, more than any other period in any of their careers. They all had very long careers. Uh, but none of them were stars. None of them were, were what would be considered A-listers. Each of them came from, they were, it was, and I, so I really was interested in that B-level star, a seriously working actor, but not, not a sort of, not somebody like Jose Ferrer or Anthony Quinn who were considered to be great actors of the era.
0: Right. Mm
2: -hmm. And, um, and also because, um, uh, they each, all three of them were what I sometimes call openly Latino. They didn't closet their identity. They all had Spanish surnames. They all were, um, uh, they all were bilingual, and they talked about that in the interviews. They all talked about how important their cultural heritage was in different places. They all took stances of advocacy with regard to um, the presence of uh, like uh, Latino communities in the U.S., but also in their home in their home origins. Uh, Ricardo Montalban is uh, Spanish and Mexican descent. Uh, Juana Hernandez is uh, from the Caribbean, Puerto Rico mostly, and then um, Mel Ferrer is is uh, is of Cuban descent. Um so they were all sort of handily and and they they're all sort of handily comparable and what I also was really interested by was at the end of the era um three, of the 3 uh as their careers continued into the 60s and the 70s um Ricardo Montalban remained legible as a latino actor Juana Hernandez was forgotten in some ways as a Latino actor, as he was celebrated as an African-American actor, and Mel Ferrer became just one of the other white guys from the golden age of Hollywood.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I was also interested in the way that they helped chart the ways that Latino-ness became sort of, it almost became conventionalized as looking a certain way, uh, that mm-hmm. both that both um, sort of in some ways erased the presence of Afro-Latinidad. But then also mm-hmm. didn't really reckon seriously with the, with the complexity of whiteness with Latinos. it sort of met, and so so all three of them ended up ch- and telling these and because all three of them all played Asian, they all played Native American or Indigenous, they all played, uh, they all played um, African American, they all played Latino, and they all played European. You know, I was like I was really interested in the fact that these three very different guys, these three very different careers, had certain very specific things in common and they all happened to work a lot and in a lot of different ways in this period. And so, so that was just a way for me to, this, that chapter, the chapter is called stuff, but, you know, was the last chapter I wrote for the book, even though it was the chapter in some ways I started researching
0: it oh, took really? me the
2: longest to find it. You know, in some ways that was, I think the question that got me to the project was mm-hmm. this way of like, how do we, how do we see, you know, because the, the idea of stuff Latino comes from the community practice, right. That I mm-hmm. grew up with as a kid in the seventies where um like people in my generational cohort all knew for sure. Like we talked about it at school that Linda Carter who played Wonder Woman, that she was Latina. We mm-hmm. taught, we knew mm-hmm. that Right. it was not part of her marketing. It was not, she did not have a surname, but we knew that. So there was this way of sort of clocking a name and, and sort of at, at a point of pride that like ever, like my dad's generation was always like, Vicky Carr has Spanish language albums. You know, it's like these things, mm-hmm. these these ways of, um, Gregory Nava talks about Raquel Welch, as we knew she was from San Diego, and we knew she was one of us, even though she had this other career. And so there's this way of like, the way that Latinos could see Latinones in others, and so I was interested in that question of who, how do we see and not see latino and where do the conventions of racial performance as they become sort of codified, both industrial and socially, um, end up erasing the legitimacy of certain Latino identities. And so mm-hmm. that was the underlying question. And I was really interested in how questions of casting, which so often are part of my world and have been my entire professional life, um, often don't have a way of thinking about the way that actors were cast as documenting what I talked about before the common sense of their era. Mm -hmm. We often will talk about uh, equity and access and this is inappropriate or appropriate casting, but we, but how do we go back and look and see how Latino actors were cast in the previous era, not in terms of authenticity or accuracy, but in terms of other questions of, um, excuse me, my office phone is ringing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of other, other issues of, of, um, Of just, you know, not in terms of authenticity or accuracy, but in terms of documentation of shifting common senses with regard, uh, shifting common sense logics with regard to Latinidad. Right. So, so, so that's, so, I mean, I was, I love this. I love that chapter. Yeah, no, I I, I also, uh, you know, you know, it's my, it's my favorite, I think. The first chapter I wrote was the West Side Story chapter, and the last chapter mm. I wrote were I was Stealth Latino, and those are the two most important chapters to me in the book, I think.
1: Yeah, no, they're both great, so, and they they re- they follow each other. At least you know the uh, the West Side Story one, you know, follows the uh, the Stealth Latino chapter, and um, they're both just I mean they're phenomenal. Um, and I, particularly examples, you. I could see how it could take you know as so long to find. I don't know if that's what took you the long time. Is is finding you know the three examples, uh, the three actors that you're going to focus on in that chapter. Is is that what took so long, or um, is it? Uh, I mean, there's a lot conceptually. There's so much that you're doing with it. You're you're doing in the chapter. Yeah. The, the closeting well, of the I idea. Huh?
2: Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think I think your question about what took me so long. Um, <laughs> In some ways, I had to, I mean, I'm writing a whole book about the history of casting now in some, in no small part, because I researched it while trying to figure out how to tell that story. Right. Because there was no historical way to talk about casting. I kept going to the library looking for the books, like, how did people get parts? How did, you know, and so I had to really think through the critical questions of what does casting mean? Why Mm -hmm. do we care about casting? What are the ways we can and can't know about casting? I had to do a lot of other work and periodically I would. I would float ideas or introduce chapters to advisors and they would be like, they would ask me to, and it would just be totally shot down because there was no there there. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't, like like even though I saw that there was a story to be told, I couldn't find a way to marshal evidence in a way that also told a story.
0: Gotcha.
2: And so it really took me a long time and it took me, and in, in, I, I, I say like this book I'm writing right now about the history of casting, Basically, is the stuff that came out of the clippings of trying to get to write that self know chapter. You know, yeah, it's like, right. like the I had the hook. I just didn't have the material right, for the right. longest time. And luckily, it just luckily I'm a I'm an omnivore, and uh, the the decades the the length of time I took to write this book, I became a very pop, I, I just watched everything, and so then I began to sort of start charting certain people. Like I started charting Juan Hernandez, mm-hmm. and and I said he's he's right there because he's really so interesting. And he is, he's the most important Afro-Latino actor of the 20th century, I would say. Mm-hmm. And his story has been completely, it's, he's fallen through the cracks because he didn't follow any of the rules. Right. And uh, and so so I was like, okay, so, I, so once I knew Juan Hernandez, I had to build his story. And then I started getting a sense of like, okay, this is, he's right in the right period. Who else is in the mix? And then I started hit, and Ricardo was all over it because at first, like, he was like a Latin lover and he was literally hired by MGM Studios to be a Latin lover. That was his job title. (laughs) Um, And so I, I had a lot of stuff on him in his early days, but then I was all, I hadn't really figured out the way his career sort of took to a shift when he was, when his contract was decommissioned as the studios began to decommissioning contracts
0: mm-hmm.
2: and how his work took a different shape, even though he continued working through that period. And it really did require that I start watching a lot of television mm-hmm. and seeking out more as much radio as I could find access to for these guys. And mm-hmm. so that all of those things together ended up giving me the mix of materials that ended up being essential to my being able to, um, to piece, to piece a story together. But underneath that, the conceptual apparatus um, took a while to build as well. And yeah. once I got a sense of being able to argue, once I got figured out that we could argue not, because I, I firmly believe that there's no way to know why somebody got a part. Right, right. Um, because it's one of those, we, we always have a hunger and there's all these theories and people will say sometimes, but there's no way, there's no smoking gun on why somebody got a part. But we do know that they got the Right, And so rather than fixating on what part who could have gotten the part or why did they get the part, let's start accruing from filmographies the fact that these actors got these roles. And what happens when we start looking at that broader category and we start, start looking not only what roles they played on film, but also what roles they played on television, what roles they played in theater, what roles they played on radio, what roles they played in public events. And we start doing a multi-platform approach to how actors were valued in terms mm-hmm. of how they were hired, we can then begin to sort of assemble. And then when we look at, then the next layer was then look at how they engaged with media and how the media engaged with them as they did perform those roles. Then I began to get a sense of how to, of how to sort of make the story that I intuited that I could see, but not name, how I could, how I could evince that from the archive. And thankfully I'm working in the 20th century and it's a, it's a period where Um, and my favorite period is the mid 20th century where there's a lot of recordings that do survive. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of print culture. So there's a lot of magazines, there's a lot of newspapers. And so there's a paper trail for these people. And then Mm -hmm. over the course of the time I developed the book, uh, the number of the, the digital search engines for printed periodicals just got a lot easier to work with. And so Mm -hmm. I was able to start marshalling incredible archives from not even the most prominent newspapers, but smaller papers and smaller things that just really started giving me being able to, in Juan Hernandez's case, I was able to create a, um, I was able to sort of build his story Mm -hmm. because his story hasn't really been, there's no biography of him. And, and, and so it was sort of, I had to piece that together from a lot of really sort of somewhat, tiny fragments at different points. Mm-hmm. And so I suddenly I was able to, but once I started sort of doing that, moving out and moving multi-platform, I think those two gestures for me were the transformative ones was when I decided to really think not just between film and theater, but to add television, add radio and add other events that were notable and start so really doing this sort of the terrain of how this actor paid his bills for these 15 years. Um, that helped me, Really, get a better sense of the complexity of the story and how the B-list actor more than the A-list actor um, told me more about the world. Gotcha. Yeah. That they were working in.
1: Well, no, and your comments on you know making sense of this and pulling this book together reminds me of uh, you know a number of conversations that I have with with many that come on this channel and, and particularly in how um you know those within Latino and Chicano studies. You know, uh, build their projects, and it, it begin generally begins with be- really constructing an archive. Uh, you know, it, as yeah, you mentioned, yeah. seeing something, ha- you know, getting a glimpse in in something that you read or find uh, in the archive that that there is something there. There's a story to be told, an argument to made But then you have to feel that. It, you have to build it. You know, there there is necessarily yep. no one place that you can go to to find this stuff. I mean, just as I was reading through. Um, you know your book, I just loved it. I I, I pulled up, uh, you know, uh, YouTube and just started looking at you know some film clips to kind of go along with this to, to yeah. see what it, what it is that you're talking about. And just it's so fascinating. But really, I mean, I I can empathize with you know the amount of material that you had to go through. Uh, it's oftentimes when I tell people I'm a 20th century historian, they think, oh, they kind of respond like, well, first of all, they wonder, like, oh, that's a thing. You know, I thought that was too recent, and then they yeah. like, well, you yeah. must your job must be easy, and. But yeah. you know, the, 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 the challenge is, you're right. There's there's a ton of material, but the challenge is bringing all the material together, and then as you uh, you also explain on here, you know, developing conceptually the tools of how you're going to do this, right? How are you going to pull these disparate archives together and these sources together to tell a coherent narrative? Um, and so um, it, it's it's something certainly that uh, is evident in the work that you're doing, and uh, I think uh, you know the examples in, in the stuff Latino chapter, you know, just work really well. And I can see how they, you know, it's interesting the way that you you situate them in the book, but it makes completely sense, uh, you know, how those chapters took so long to write and and how they they do play well, such it, a it, part, it, role in the book.
2: Well, and in some ways they were the ones that I wrote, wrote the quickest. That chapter uh-huh. I think I wrote the quickest right. um, uh, once you had and all all that now, right? like, Yeah, right. and once I got it, it was like oh, I knew how to tell the story, and I liked right. the story approach. I mean, I think the inaugural gesture of the book is really my decision to. Um, I think be the person, perhaps still the only, I don't know, um, person to really think methodically between the film and between the stage version and the film version of West Side Story right, to really right. think to, to like that was the in, in some ways that's the inceptive gesture. That is what every chapter ended up having to sort of realize again is 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 that first chapter was the chapter I wrote as a seminar paper and in the core that I wrote as a seminar paper. Mm. And and it was in graduate school and it was really trying to sort of talk about the changes that were made between the two versions, and why those changes were meaningful. Because so many of the canonical articles that we read about West Side Story collapsed the stage version and the film version, right, I right really exactly. thought it as being, being notably different. And so, how did I? How could I make that legible? And what was interesting is the concluding gesture of. Uh, The concluding gesture of the West Side Story chapter, which the bulk of it is really talking about the phenomenon of West Side Story, Mm -hmm. how the story came to stage, what changed when it went to film. And I really just try to do a very methodical breakdown of why the changes that happened between Mm -hmm. 1957 and 1960, 61 are are worth noticing because they actually document transformations in how we think about Latinos in in general and Puerto Rican specifically. But then the concluding gesture in that chapter is also sort of reflects how the book evolved. In that I really go beyond either stage or screen and look to other, other platforms like magazine, magazine Mm -hmm. stories and, and, um, TV episodes that begin sort of borrowing the templates that West Side Story has made, made accessible and ubiquitous in terms of explaining underclass urban poverty with regard to Latinos. And so, so it's, um, so, so so that chapter, even though it was in some ways the chapter that is, has the oldest prose, in the book, it also was, had to be retrofitted to fit the way the book had evolved,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, cause like I had to add these, like I, like one of my happiest discoveries was, was encountering, um, an episode of a weird TV, of a weird, uh, not very well-known TV show, which basically replicated the plot, Configuration of West Side Story of the of the shark story of West Side Story even using the characters the names Maria and Anita but flipping them you know it was like and it basically did this sort of like it ripped it off uh, you know in in the right when the show was still going on and it was this totally obscure thing that I only found because I knew that if Miriam Colon's name was in something I needed to watch it and I watched it and it was like oh my gosh this is perfect this is weird oh my goodness you know and that's I think the part A and it did help me sort of open that chapter outward. Beyond the, the the canonical story of West Side Story, 2. Oh, yeah. So so it's so it's so in some ways that's that's the fun and the 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 fun part of a book that takes a long time to write is you have all these weird pieces that have come in different moments of your own intellectual development certainly. and then you start, then you start stitching them together as you would a quilt, but you have to find a way for them to come in balance. And so so that means sometimes you have to make the changes because this first chapter now doesn't match the later chapter and you have to sort of make those adjustments. And that is, I think, uh, what, um, these books that take a long time, uh, to keep them holistic is a really, uh, it's a rich, it, when it works, I mean, and I think I, I was able to make it mostly work in, in Latin numbers. It, it really did teach me, teach me so much about not only the um, intellectual work of developing a book, but also the technical stuff of how to write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried, to, I tried to write it in a way that was readable. And that's, that's another set of challenges.
1: You know, it certainly is. And I think the the subject matter really helps with that. But it, it is essentially I mean, you yeah. do a wonderful job of uh, also making this very readable, readable. There's a lot going on conceptually, but it, it does uh, read very well. And it's, uh, it's just really fascinating for me to hear how it came together for you, uh, you know, reading it in its final form, the way the chapters work, which aren't necessarily chronological, you explain it, it really is overlapping yeah. periods. Um, but it does kind of yeah. have a, a very fluid type of uh, you know, feel to it where you're moving along, you know, the narrative very well, even though, you know, it's, uh, I can only imagine, uh, you know, what it was to, to put this together. Um I wanted to, before we wrap up, I, I was wondering if we could pull back a bit. We've talked about a couple of the examples and there there's a lot more in the book, but uh I wonder if you could tell us, you know, just your estimation of, of you know, having written the book, you know, and gone through these, you know, Recognizing these periods of, you know, this, this intense fascination with Latinos, where they kind of explode onto the scene, but really seeing how this has recurred over time, uh, what is it? What is it that you think? Uh, I mean, is it something about U.S. society? Uh, you know, that that has created this recurring fascination, you know, with Latinos, to where they're they're in and out. I mean, we we just, for example, we're just coming through another one, right? Uh, uh, yep. particularly with Latino political power, right? Uh, a lot of the, the discourse yep. up to this current election was, was about how this, this is it. Uh, you know, 2012 was supposed this to will be, the elect- and then this will be the 2016. The <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, just your thoughts on that, uh, on, uh, what is it about U.S. society in, in particular that has, uh, this, this recurring fascination, um, with a group like Latinos? And I don't try to say Latinos are the only one, because certainly other ethnic groups, you know, come in and out of these registers also, but, uh, just share some thoughts with us. I think line on that.
2: I think my I think my my it's pretty it's a pretty um, boiled down deterministic one is I think that so much of about American American U.S. American life and culture has been established on those early constitutional sort of claims of whiteness, uh, this sort of one drop. Like this sort of, in like this, the way that so much about American policy was built around the fantasy of racial purity and protecting yeah. that. And most of the big ethnic groups have been marked outside of that in different ways you know, indigenous folks were sort of meant to word in the 19th century were claimed to be disappearing, that they were a failed race, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, pers- so the present, the persistent survival of, in- of native Americans and American Indians has been the challenge, right? The African Americans were determined as being less than human. And so that constant of af- the constant struggle within American life of folks of African descent, having to constantly reassert the legitimacy of their basic humanity. Um, uh, Asian, like with the Chinese Exclusion Act and everything like this in the nineteenth century, right. Asian Americans were meant as being unassimilable, unassimilably alien, in that sort of that Orientalist, that exotic, that way that of just there's no way of integrating these folks, and that manifests in things like internment and those kind of things. So, so these these persistent questions, which were about this this hard line of racial of creating categories of racial distinction that were that were rigid. Mm -hmm. And then comes Latinos and Latinos exist in defiance of the idea like they are like it's a mix. Latinos exist as a mix. Mm -hmm. And and so there's this constant frustration of. In in the American scene, of like how to put them, how to put Latinos somewhere, (laughs) and so so in the twentieth century, they got their own category. But up until then, it was always trying to figure out where do they slot, where do we put them, what category do we put them in, and so I think that. And then, of course, once the Reagan, once the Nixon, Carter, and Reagan administrations installed the idea of Hispanic they installed it and built it literally around the three main groups around whom there who sort of became a sort of part of the United States through various sort of political machinations like annexation or colonialization or sort of the exile sort of story. There were specific places that these national groups had in America because of U S geopolitics. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so the category of Hispanic or Hispanic was invented to address those three groups. And the second that category was named, it was, Inadequate right, as, right. as uh, you know, as other groups that are coming in, also as a result of US geopolitics, and so so there's this way that um, the inadequacy of the categories of the American of the American racial racial imaginary to in, to fully in, uh, comprehend the complexity that is um, the uh, racial mixture, ethno uh, uh, racial mixture is in some ways the the frustration, right. and it's this. And it's this, this, it's, it's the particular challenge, uh, Latinos never, I mean, like, I think with the election, like the election stuff, like this was the election, like several other elections before that Latinos were supposed to be the ones casting the deciding vote. And of course, Latino voting patterns all over the place, fairly clearly and fairly clearly in certain ways, but they did not follow predictions and that's, Mm -hmm. What's striking to me is that was exactly what Puerto Ricans were being faulted for in 1950, in yeah, the 1950s yeah. in New York, because they were not following the predictable patterns of previous ethnic migrations to the city. Mm-hmm. And so there's this way that the internal complexity of Latinidad is constant, is a constant frustration to uh, this this American impulse to create coherent racial categories and granted, and this is not to say that the existing racial categories are convenient, are coherent, but there is this kind of peculiar, uh, there's this peculiar foundational need in American life. Uh, it seems to me that goes back to citizenship stuff in the 1790s. Mm -hmm. Um, that is, uh, that Latinos just are consistently a problem (laughs) for. And, (laughs) And so it just, um, and so I think that that's part of the story of why, and I do believe that my story, the story I tell in Latin numbers, is I do think that Latinos are, are uh, it's a very 20th century story of this emergence of this category of a category that did not begin, exist at the beginning of the 20th century that was in fairly firm, if not, it was still fraught, but fairly firm operation by the end. Certainly. And I think yeah. in the 21st century, I think we see other categories that are coming into formation. And I think we see various rehearsals over the last two decades of what is the ethno-racial category that's going to be designed to encapsulate people from the Middle East or the Islamic descent. All you mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 There's sort of this pressure and anxiety about whether or not there needs to be a new category to encapsulate another group of people. And that's the story, I think, that we're living in right now. And it's a story that, I think I was thinking, started thinking about. I mean, I spent part of my youth growing up in the Middle East, but but part of all that I was also struck by was how many Latino actors were cast to play Middle Eastern characters. Right, when shows yeah. like Law and Order in the first decade of the century began telling stories about Middle Eastern and Islamic communities, they started casting Latino actors. And so I said, This is a replicate. this is a reprise of the 1950s, where when we're not exactly sure where somebody fits in an mm-hmm. ethnic, in the ethno ethnic racial landscape, call in the Latino actors. <laughs> and, all, and that's part of the that's part. Of the repertoire of how Latino actors are useful in an American entertainment apparatus, so so it's um so I do think that this is I don't know I think I've gone a little bit far afield from your original question, but I I do think that that is part of the weird way um that it has this. I always say that the Latin explosion and the recurring fixation on Latinos is how historical amnesia is made fun for Latinos and non-Latinos alike. Mm-hmm. You know, to, that by using entertainment, by using cultural things like food and parties and beer and stuff like this, it's a way of sort of performing historic, like enjoying the fact of historical amnesia, of not really taking seriously the long 500, like the story of Latinos is a story that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. My story focuses on this particular clarifying, Moment that, moments that happened in the twentieth century, but most of what goes on in the U.S. media and scholarly apparatus is trying to focus on Latinos as new. Right. And certainly. My story, as well as the as well as the full story, reminds us, and I think some of the important work that's been coming out around Lat, the Latino nineteenth century right now is just really pressing against this idea that the, that the history is a recent history. This is a history that reaches and reaches, and it we need to keep. Thinking of its complexity, of the complexity of even the recent past, right. as we look at, um, as we try to resist this idea, of the, the the perpetual novelty, the, the perpetual novelty thesis, with regard to U.S. Latinos that they're always new, they always just got here, they're always about to be important.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, and, and you state this in the beginning of the book that really this is a you know your effort to really you know merge uh, Latino history and U.S. history and show how much you mean they're. It's really the same thing. You know, I mean, Latino history is yep. right in there yep. embedded issues. It's a multi, you know, hundred years, uh, you know, of, of intersection uh, with the development of, of uh, you know, the American uh, political institutions yeah. and and cultural institutions.
2: Oh, well, like, like Vicky Ruiz, this addressed the Organization of American Historians or A.H., whichever one. Oh, Vicky Ruiz, when she was president, that's the mm-hmm. story that she told in her presidential address 10 years ago. And I think it's a story that, that Latino uh Latino um, artists and authors and activists and historians are. We need to tell ourselves. We need to tell our communities as well, because I think there are real temptations to sort of this urgency that comes with the sort of the importance of the newness mm-hmm. of, of Latinos. There's often it's often tempting uh, for I know for cultural workers to sort of say like, oh, you know, yeah, we're the newest biggest group like you should give us more money to do more shows because we're the newest biggest group and i think it's sort of uh we have to be very alert like strategically whatever you gotta do to make this stuff happen
0: but
2: also be alert to the fact that that is um that is a script of erasure as much as as much as it seems to be a script of presence
1: exactly yeah right well, thank you for those comments. I, I appreciate them. And, uh, I wanted to give you one quick moment also before we, we end here. And I really do appreciate your time. Uh, just to tell us a bit of, of, about what you're working on now. I know you have a couple things, a couple projects sure. going on.
2: Yeah, um, both projects, both projects ended up coming out of the dissertation. They're sort of like, I had to prune these things off the dissertation so the dissertation could become the book that is Latin numbers. One I talked a little bit about recently, which is, uh, history, casting a history, which looks at the material practices of casting or how actors were assigned roles going from the later 19th to the early 20th. 21st century. It's a, it's really the first history of its kind. It does the multi-platform approach that I was talking about earlier of really trying to think about how practices like the audition or the headshot or everything like this became ubiquitous. And it's a big macro view history um, that in some ways was mostly researched while I was trying to write towards self-Latino. The other mm-hmm. book is a very different book. It's called Starring Miss Virginia Calhoun and it tells the story of a deservedly obscure early 20th century actress, writer, and producer who spent much of her life life trying to bring her adaptation of the Ramona story to successful performance. Mm. And the Ramona story is, as some of your not, your listeners might know, is a very popular novel of the 19th century that ended up becoming a very sort of gone with the wind-like kind of right. narrative, very a fascinating romantic narrative of, of Spanish California. And right. it was really popular in the early 20th century. And so this is a my first chapter in the dissertation was actually about uh, narratives of the border daughter, of the daughter on the borderlands, and how Mm. white women, especially white California women, often took on that character, and all of this kind of stuff. But it ended up not fitting in the book, and so there's uh, what I realized in writing, and so it was was developing casting a history. It's it's a very big story. It talks about structural change. It talks about all these things, and it's illustrated mostly by anecdote
0: Mm. and Mm -hmm. relevant
2: example, right? And I found that it was hard. It's not the kind of writing I love I, that excites me in the same way, and I would get weary of it very quickly. And I wanted to tell simple short stories, and I realized that my Virginia my Virginia Calhoun book was very much about episodes, stories, and characters. Ah, so I'm working on okay. them two in tandem, sort of working on them in some ways as using the principle of opposing muscle groups to sort of <laughs> take turns. You know, when I get tired writing one, I turn to the other. And and both are mostly um, research. They of course have pickup up research as every project does. But I'm in the process right now of working and working and writing on both of them right now. Wow. So neither of them have a specifically Latino focus, though they are, um, have a, they, even though they, they purport like they purport to tell a general story, not a Latino story, they are right. full of Latino-ness because that's the ground in which they were planted. Certainly. Both in me and then also in the research, research questions that led me to discover these stories.
1: Certainly. Right wow, well, thanks for sharing um you know those those upcoming projects, both of them sound fascinating uh you know yeah, certainly you know the Ramona novel is just uh you know yeah. it's it's right at the center for California historians where we kind of we we get our start a lot of times you know in looking into yeah yeah uh, you know literatures and you know the the boosterism that that uh brings latinos to, to or you know mexicans a really big prominence particularly to the midwest and whatnot so certainly great glad to yeah, hear no, about both it, of those projects yeah, no, it no, sounds it,
2: great it, for california historians like california historians going to have a uh, uh, ramon the, the virginia calhoun book is going to be a hoot for anybody who knows california history uh, or even the history of the west generally certainly.
1: It's gonna be a <laughs> all right well,
2: well thanks so much for this DJ.
1: same here i appreciate you again and uh for your time i i held you longer than i promised but uh I, I appreciate you coming on. So we'll look forward to probably I having you again it. when those next books come out. So best of luck to that.
2: Okay, well, thanks for thanks for bringing me. I mean, one of the things is that I'm really glad to be part of the conversation at this podcast um, podcast stages. So I'm really, uh, thanks for the invitation.
1: Of course. Well, thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Brian Eugenio Herrera, author of Latin Numbers, Playing Latino in 20th Century U.S. Popular Performance, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2015. If you'd like to get in contact with us, uh, you may send us an email to newbooksandlatinostudies at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook and Twitter. We also encourage you to uh, subscribe to and like the podcast, either through Stitcher or iTunes. And lastly, if you'd like to get a copy of Dr. Herrera's book, you may click on the image, which is on our New Books and Latino Studies page of his book, which will connect you with Amazon. Thanks again.